0: Alchemy Alchemy is an ancient practice associated with science, chemistry, physics, astronomy, astrology, art, symbology, metallurgy, medicine, and philosophical analysis. And despite that these sciences were not exercised in a scientific way as known today, alchemy is the origin of modern logic. Welcome to the Alchemy of Truth. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Dear listeners, assalamu alaykum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh, and welcome to another episode of the Alchemy of Truth. This is your host Nasr al khatib uh, and I have with me here today uh, our co-host Anrose Zayed. Anrose, assalamu alaikum.
1: Welcome, Salam. How are you going?
0: Alhamdulillah, very good. Thank you. Uh, we also have our guest here today, who is uh, Brother Muhammad Tabah from Melbourne. He is completing his PhD at uh, Melbourne University. In stuff. In, in
2: something
1: was in something in something comment, something
0: yes. in human rights no. in criminology
2: criminology yes.
0: criminology and law criminology and the law. yes we also have with us today uh, brother doctor Bahar Ulum uh Mohammed uh, Mursi <laughs> Yasser. brother Yasser Morsi, <laughs> also from <laughs> Melbourne University who is now Not
1: from <laughs> Melbourne
0: University uh, initially uh, yes uh, he is uh, now a, a post postdoc research fellow at the University of South Australia at the International Center for Muslim non-Muslim understanding Brother Yasr, assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh salam Wa alaykum wa rahmatullah And welcome to our show, thank you very much for attending Thank you Our question or our topic here today uh, is um, with uh, brother Muhammad Tabak um, We are talking about uh, human rights and what human rights means um, In today's uh, language Things we talk about as being just standard basic uh, terms or definitions actually have a lot of loaded uh, d- meanings behind them political and otherwise so for example, when we talk about feminism, we had a show last year talking about feminism the understanding of feminism is just it's just a natural I guess protection of, of women's rights when it you know clearly it was not it had a lot of you know political and other um, histories to it and so the same thing with human rights when we're talking about human rights the understanding that we have is of course um, rights for humans but of course um, uh, as speaking to brother Mohammed here he's going to explain to us uh, what that means so brother Mohammed we'll start with this question what do we mean when we say human rights
2: okay when we say human rights today in a very normative definition we're referring postmodern understanding of both a human and rights Okay, so the um, the modern era, especially this past century, has been described as the century of humanity and rights. Okay, we've uh, discovered the understanding of humanity and that of rights. Now, I'll give you first a very brief uh, sort of basic understanding of human rights. Um, it's seen to come, first of all, it's said the, the understanding of human rights we have today is understood to have come directly. Uh, from a trajectory from the ancient Greeks. Okay, so they have the idea of natural law, um, and that progressed through the ages, and eventually, this is the you know common story that we're told. Eventually, that became human rights. So human rights basically are uh, those things that we're born with on the account of being human. Okay, yep. so um, but uh, the way that uh, that rights are actually um, defined are not th- not as possessions. Yeah, so you're not given rights by anybody. Uh, it's actually the opposite. Rights are things you possess automatically um by virtue of being human, and they're things which cannot be removed from you. So when people say, for example, um, you know we want to thank the police for giving us the right to protest, that's it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, police cannot take away your right to protest. Right uh, rights are viewed as something uh, like your soul, yeah, like your hand, like a, a limb on your body. Um, nobody gives them to you. Um, In fact, nobody can take them away from you. So that's a very basic uh, understanding of today's uh, concept of human rights, if you like.
0: Yeah. Uh, So just I wanted to follow up with a question about that. Uh, When we say, you know, natural human rights, are we talking about, for example, God-given human rights or state-given human rights or some kind of ideology that defines what's a human right and what's not?
2: Well, that's a very good question because initially, um, all throughout history, rights, I mean, from their... It depends on where you place them in history, but let's say generally throughout the Western history, rights have been always understood as God-given, and natural rights through the Greek tradition was generally understood as a God-given right. Now, what's interesting with our modern understanding of human rights is that we've wanted to keep this natural understanding of rights, but remove God from it. Yeah, and so um, and this is and the only way you can make sense of that afterwards is by making up the category of the human. Okay, the human who's automatically born with rights. Why? We don't know. He just is, yeah? Um, so, no, today's understanding of human rights, even though the human rights declarations, um, most of them begin with, you know, these rights were granted by God. Um, today, we don't have that anymore. We don't have that understanding of uh, God granting rights. Instead, what we have is this gap, okay, this absence of origin. We just have rights because, full stop.
0: So then how, how can we all agree on a... Um a universal definition of what, what can count as human rights and what doesn't count as human rights.
2: Well, we don't. Actually, we don't agree. on
1: that, um, can you briefly take us through the um, discourse in regards to um, universality versus cultural relativism?
2: Yeah, in a sec, yeah. Um, good question. <laughs> it's okay, not <laughs> <so to> 101. <laughs> um, okay. When you say, so how do we all agree with them? We don't. It's That's a myth. That's a part of the um, human rights ideological myths that... Everybody agrees with human rights. So like Sister Anna Rose said, th- you know, there's an understanding of them as being universal. Yeah. Um, so the universal relativism debate is the most common one mm-hmm. within the human rights circle. Uh, again, very quickly, uh, universalist uh, human rights discourse will basically say that everybody agrees or everybody has human rights uh, in one form or another. And there's obviously discussions about their definition. But basically that it's just plain fact that uh, human rights are human rights. We all have rights because we're born human. Um, Now, the relativism uh, discourse is a reaction to that, saying that, actually, there are different cultures in the world, there are different groups, they each have a different understanding of rights, Uh, rights will be contextual, so rights in, you know, sub-Saharan Africa might be different to rights in Italy, for example, based on their context, etc., etc., so um, so this is the most common um, and dominant uh, debate, if you like, around human rights, Um, and it's not one that I actually like, it's not one that I agree with, I think there are far more interesting discussions around human rights um, especially critiques such as such as okay so if you look at the two founding critiques of human rights from their inception um, both on opposite ends of the spectrum but both can be tied and and synthesized so one of them was by uh, edmund burke who was a conservative um, and the other was uh, interestingly by karl marx who was not Um, so the edmund burke argument uh, again very quickly uh, or just an outline of it was that Human rights are too abstract to be real. Okay, so human rights are a theory. Okay, um, they're, they're up in the clouds, basically. Yeah? So here's a couple of famous quotes, uh, which I'll paraphrase. So he says, you know, I've traveled the world. I've met Spaniards, I've met Italians, I've met Greeks. I've never met man in his abstract form. So the man that human rights speaks of, Uh, in its you know as a subject as a subject of rights i've never met him and he doesn't exist yeah we have uh, you know spanish people with you know particular traits with particular characteristics uh, cultures and so on Um, and so this idea of rights is simply too abstract to be real Mm -hmm. and another um, comment from him in that regard is what purpose or what benefit does an idea of rights bring if it can't make the farmer give up his food for the poor? An understanding of rights or a theory of rights in a book doesn't put food on the table. So that was his critique, essentially, that human rights are quite airy-fairy. They don't actually exist. They're just things on paper. Now, you go to the entire entire opposite spectrum, you have Karl Marx who said the exact opposite. Yeah? He said that human rights are too concrete to be universal. So this goes back to a universal question. Uh, what he means by that is that um, and this follows on from last week's discussion with with brother the asset about racism um, and what is discussed generally about the human subject and whatnot okay so if you look at the liberal subject and human rights is, is a, a core part of liberalism our liberal ideology uh, the liberal subject and this argument has been made to death uh, represents you know a white uh male heterosexual etc etc we all know that one so that is also the subject at the heart of human rights okay so marx was basically critiquing that that the subject is way too specific too concrete too real too um you know too grounded to be universal to apply to all peoples yeah so if you bring the two together which um a legal professor does costas to he says that both arguments go hand in hand so human rights in its abstract theoretical form is way too abstract to be real okay it can't apply it's not realistic however within a post-colonial context within our context you know of racism once that theory is grounded then it becomes it manifests as this white heterosexual male etc etc so both go hand in hand and and i guess that's what you end up with
0: now and uh, you've mentioned uh, post-colonial context so what is the relationship between post-colonialism and human rights as we understand it today
2: well, that's a very interesting discussion. Um, it's a very long one. Okay, so to give you one, I guess, without going through, you know, entire history of it, to give you one example of how the relationship between post-colonialism and human rights works. If you look at the drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights okay, by the United Nations, um, if you look at the uh, countries that were involved in the drafting of that document, yeah. So you had this was uh, at the end of the Second World War. It was uh, seen, or I guess the myth is that it was a response to the World War to bring the countries together, etc. Now this document was drafted um, by essentially by seven people. Okay, six of them were Christian. Um, all of them were Western educated. Okay, and then you had in the drafting process um, there were no Muslims on the uh, in the drafting process. All of the countries that had been defeated in the war were simply excluded. Okay, you had countries that were still colonized. So what you had, uh, which is quite an interesting, um, I guess, example, is that you have a document which has been formed and produced by a very, very specific group of people uh, and then uh, blasted out as being universal. Okay, Okay, so a bunch of basically Western educated people would come up with this universal document which was to represent all people. And and
0: they they would have been uh, doing this from a, I guess, a Christian perspective. Of what they regard as no, it was
2: more a post enlightenment perspective. It mm. was it was a very secular perspective, and this was one of the initial criticisms of the document is that uh, it doesn't have religion. So the Muslims who complained, uh, basically everybody who was not involved complained. Okay, so the Soviets complained, uh, the, a number of Muslim countries complained, mm. um, all sorts of people complained that this is actually not representative whatsoever of our beliefs. But that's only again a very uh, direct and. I guess you could say, a more superficial reading of the relationship. If you want to look at it more fundamentally, um, which is again one of the critiques of of uh, human rights, human rights is, in a sense, uh, it's supposed to be about humans, okay, humans and their rights. So this this is if you follow the claims of human rights, it's about giving rights to human beings. What it actually does, in essence, and again, uh, Costa Zunis goes through this in a very long book, a uh, critical book, A uh, hu- uh, Look on Human Rights, what it actually does if you study the documents of human rights, so if you study the Universal Declaration, if you study the French Declaration, the American Declarations, and so on, the very first act that human rights declarations, uh, I guess, enforce is that they actually empower the state. Now there's a very ironic and really interesting um, paradox at play here. Okay? Now human rights have come essentially throughout history to protect vulnerable people and groups from state power. Okay, from power of, of governments, from from the powerful, basically, yeah. So human rights are supposed to be a tool of the weak against the powerful. Now, what's happened throughout this history is that human rights declarations have actually, in their very first act, have come to empower states. And what they've done is actually entrust states with the protection of rights against themselves. Yeah, in these very uh, weird circles. Okay, so you basically, uh, at the end of the day, what human rights do is uh, give power to states and say, please don't abuse these. Okay, please protect your own people against your own abuses. Yeah, So, I- in effect, they get stripped of any power. Okay, so they're meant to be given to you, you know, Nasser, uh, as an individual. So you can say, you know, if you're being oppressed by a state, you can say, hey, I have these rights, I can make these appeals, I have, you know, such and such power. Um, but in effect, what's happened is that you now need to appeal to the very body that's oppressing you uh, through the language of human rights in order to stop uh, oppressing you. So it's, be- it's a very interesting history that they've taken.
1: So could you give us a um, concrete example of when this has happened, for example? When? Um, you know, the states as the entrusters of rights instead abuse rights. Oh, well, if you look at... I know it's endless, but... Okay, if, uh, uh,
2: if you look at the United Nations currently, yeah, they're, I guess, the protectors of and enforcers of human rights. Now, who do states deal with? Uh, sorry, who does the United states, uh, United Nations deal with? States okay as an individual you can not actually appeal to anybody to enforce your rights except for states and and, I mean there are international courts and so on but these are all dealing with states okay so in this act what they do is they entrench the um, the position of states as right givers and right deniers essentially yeah Mm -hmm. so this is where um, this is where the contradiction is seen in full force okay so you have to appeal to your state uh, through the United Nations in order to get any any recourse um, through human rights. So does that sort of answer your question?
1: Yeah, yeah. I was just meaning um, to kind of for our listeners take it out of the academic realm into a practical understanding of how that might happen. Do you have any physical okay. examples of a physical state doing what you just described?
2: Doing. Well, I mean, okay. There's this, there's there are plenty of examples. There's an example that comes to mind um, in Tasmania when. Um, you know, there was the, uh, the gay rights movement, you know, marriage equality, all that sort of stuff. They had to appeal to the United Nations to basically ask uh, the state to give them rights which are supposed to be fundamental and absolute. But I mean, to, to ground it, I mean, sort of more concretely, if you like, think about yourself. Yeah, any of the listeners, think about yourself. If you have a violation of your rights, or I'll give an example for, uh, about myself just a few uh, weeks back. So I had some police officers come to my door. Um, this was quite late at night. Um, they were very rude, they were very intimidating, they basically um, broke a number of laws. Okay? Or they violated my rights. Yeah? Now at that point, okay, at that encounter, rights mean absolutely nothing. Yeah? So these fundamental principles, these tools which I'm supposed to have to counter power, mean absolutely nothing. Yeah? Because
1: you can't enforce them.
2: I cannot enforce them. Of course I can't. Now what happens if I want to enforce them? What do I have to do? Mm. I have to go to the state. I have to actually seek the protection of the state from itself. Yeah so this is where uh the contradiction comes into force that tools which are supposed to be mine um I have to actually seek permission from the state to enforce against itself
1: mm-hmm.
0: okay so there's always the assumption that the state is absolutely just at all times and if it goes against that then you're in trouble
2: well it, it i mean it doesn't really matter if the assumption is the state is just or otherwise um it's about power yeah who has the power to enforce and abuse rights um it's the state so it's made its own arbiter mm-hmm. okay for for good or bad so hmm.
0: Now, how has this understanding, this uh, understanding of human rights discourse shaped modern understanding of good and bad today?
2: Yeah, that's a very interesting question because human rights, uh, I find so fascinating because it has absolutely flooded our vocabulary. Yeah, If you think about any instance of harm done to yourself um, and you want to resist that, it almost always has to go through the language of rights. Yeah, We don't say, I've been hurt, I've been violated. We say, my rights have been taken yeah I have a right to this if you want to resist um, so again uh, some of the uh, critical work on human rights uh, tells us that the only language of resistance today is through rights which can be good um, but is also a massive problem okay if you look at the critiques of human rights especially for minorities for women for you know uh, for Muslims I would say as well um, it's not it's not a good position for us to be in so the only language that we're allowed to resist in today is the language of rights So that's the impact that it's had is that it has stripped us of any other forms of resistance, okay? Now why this is a problem is precisely because human rights privileges certain people and it disadvantages others, okay? But not only people, it privileges certain ideals, okay? So it privileges the nation-state. It privileges ideas of sovereignty tied to land and borders, okay? With everything that entails exclusion, okay? And it does this again very specifically and right in front of our eyes. So it's quite interesting that we don't Um, take a more critical eye towards human rights if you look at the human rights documents they make a very distinct um, a very clear distinction between man and citizen okay so human rights although in in the absolute highest theory in the propaganda even if you like they belong to all humans essentially they actually, they only belong to citizens okay you can only claim rights if you're a citizen and this is why asylum seekers this is why refugees this is why all of these uh, you know people who are left out the people on the edges on the margins they can't make any claims to human rights because they don't have citizenship so this is what human rights you know one of the things that human rights has done today it's come to cover everything that we know it's the only language we're allowed to use the only one that's recognizable worldwide and that's a problem i would say
1: is it useful though also to have a language that you know, is commonly understood, um, commonly used that people of a certain class can use in regards to the rights of others, and that is a common understanding?
2: Uh, Yes and no. Yes, it is obviously, in a a basic sense, it's it's quite obviously useful to have a language that everybody can understand. Um, But what's, I think, more important is what can that language offer? Uh, Can that language actually offer any form of resistance, or is it simply already appropriated by power? Um, So, uh, for example, what is the point? And and this is a question that Spivak asks. What is the purpose or what benefit can this language, this universal language, and she actually puts it as a problem. The fact that human rights language is universal uh, becomes a problem for her. What will it offer the Indian subaltern, the woman who who, uh, lives in the village, who can't speak the high language of human rights? What can it offer her? Yeah. So it becomes a class issue, it becomes a race issue, it becomes all of these issues be precisely because it's universal, precisely because it's the only language that's allowed uh, for resistance. Okay.
0: Um, now, w- what we understand now of human rights, it, it always has been explained to us as an eternal concept that just now sort of it has definitions and, and uh, limitations, etc. Uh, but, I mean, of course, the rights that a person has have al- has always been an eternal concept. So is there, for example, an Islamic paradigm of what human rights are and how they're enacted?
2: Well, there is. I mean, to, to get to the first part of your question, um, that's a contested claim. I mean, the idea of rights themselves has been there for a long time. Um, but the idea of human rights as we currently understand it is actually a very, very recent phenomenon. It's very modern and... Uh, the idea the common idea taught to us that it's a follow-on it's just simply um, the latest part of the trajectory of Western philosophy is uh, in one part untrue okay it's a very modern idea it's a very individualist idea so it's, it hasn't actually followed on from any um, trajectory so it's not something that's um, that has much of a relationship with you know ancient Greece or any of the um, you know the previous understandings of rights on the Islamic part it's something that I'm actually researching I'm trying to understand um, how we as Muslims might view human rights in regards to Islamic, you know, conceptions of rights. To be perfectly honest, the literature I've come across, which is mainly in English, is is mostly disappointing. Um, For the most part, there's an attempt to reconcile. And when I say reconcile, it's mainly trying to find uh, rights which we currently have and say, hey, these are Islamic. You know, these have always been Islamic.
0: There are, for example, when the Prophet ﷺ travels to uh, Medina, when it was called Yathrib, and there is actually a constitution of sorts that was written, in which it defines what the rights of the people of Medina are, and what the rights and responsibilities or the duties upon, upon the Prophet ﷺ as the head of that state, if you will, are. Um, so this is one example, but I'm guessing there would be many other examples. I mean, especially um, you know, in the matter of the Treaty of um, of Jerusalem in the time of Umar رضي Um, So there are these examples as well, and they, I mean, what they define as rights or as duties and responsibilities um, is this, I mean, it's very similar. It can't be ignored that there are similarities between this and between, say, the uh, International Declaration of Human Rights.
2: Okay, so this is, again, a common argument that's made. Again yes and no there are certain rights and if we talk about very specific individual rights you know maybe rights of speech maybe rights of um, you know right to life for example yes uh, these are may b- might be common across all sorts of cultures and religions and whatnot but that's I think really scratching at the surface if you look at an Islamic conception of human rights and use the word state which I would strongly disagree with um, when we think about nation state today it's very different to an understanding uh, of of you know uh, government that we have previously so what i'm more interested in is what assumptions does our understanding of human rights make okay what assumptions about the human what assumptions about the state about sovereignty and i guess most importantly what assumptions about god so in this case with human rights the assumptions about god is that he's irrelevant okay so when we say uh human rights you know we have islamic human rights we have you know modern human rights they're very similar you know documents are very similar i would say no um, the underpinnings of you know the assumptions of human rights that we have today are very secular, okay. In a sense of God doesn't matter, you know whether you say God gave us these rights, uh, you know, in the very first sentence or not. Uh, is the only reference made to God? Otherwise, uh, you know, rights are made, con- you know, completely conceptions of man.
0: Look, it may be, um, and this is a very interesting point you're raising. It may be that the the I guess the essential underpinnings of the current understanding of human rights is secular, uh, but has n- that has never stopped? Uh, the muslim understanding of working on these rights anyway because there's always of course an understanding that universally we're all the same and so we want the same and we feel the same etc so the prophet when he talks about helpful which is something uh, like a, a collective of different tribes to establish the rights of others or to protect the rights of others he said if they were to, to go back to this collective then i would come back to it as well
2: yep i'm, I'm glad you used that example actually because this is what on a On a practical level, on a normative level uh, as a praxis, as a practice, human rights can be beneficial. I'm not trying to discount them entirely what i'm what I am discounting and critiquing is uh, their supposed universality okay mm. they're not universal um whether they're beneficial or not will depend on the context. okay I might use them, and I do use them uh, if I think they'll be useful. But the idea that they're universal, that they cover all people or religions or cultures and so on is simply false. Um, but to go to your point, a very interesting point you raise about treaties, about you know this collective. yeah, This is what human rights is supposed to be and why it claims to be universal. But if you actually study uh, you know, the formation of human rights, it was everything but that. So the example I gave at the beginning of a group of people, a group of Westerners sitting around the table saying this is what human rights are and enforcing it upon the rest of the world. This is not a treaty. This is an enforcement. This is an enforced document. So, mm. if it was a treaty, it'd be a very different argument, I would say. It would be yes, you know, people agree to this um, and, and therefore such and such. But it was, it was, simply was not that. It was, again, as Spivak says. Um, you know white men saving brown women from brown men it was that it was that enforcement it was a bunch of Westerners coming together saying we know what's best for the world uh, the brown men was simply excluded the brown and black men they don't know what's best for them uh, the people who lost the war the Soviets and whatnot was were simply excluded on account of them losing the war and it ended up being you know a particular group of Europeans who made this for the entire planet
0: mm. so I mean uh, in your definition or from the readings that you've uh, uh, had and, and the people that you've mentioned here uh, you know you're you're defining the, the problems of you know the current understanding of human rights is there maybe an understanding uh, uh, like an alternative understanding or alternative proposition of how human of what human rights are and how they can be enacted
2: absolutely of course there are I mean what I'm trying to present uh, is an alternative reading of human rights to the one that we're pounded with mm-hmm. constantly okay mm-hmm. the one that we're told is that like I said at the beginning, we you know we have rights because we're human. They're universal. They're great, etc. They're neutral. Um, they're for all people and so on. So what I want to do is introduce. I mean, I'm not introducing it, but introduce to us the discussion. Uh, the critiques the alternative views on human rights uh, which have come from many 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 different groups the the amount of critiques made against human rights are extraordinary so you have um, critiques from feminists saying that they're actually really bad for women yeah uh, fundamentally too not simply you know there are some rights that are bad for women but the very concept of human rights is bad for women on, on a fundamental level and they can't be fixed they need to be discarded um you know uh, minority groups you know um, there's been a lot of critique from parts of africa about human rights there's been critiques of all sorts so uh, I don't. I don't want to simply come up here and give the you know the basic reading and say that you know human rights are great. Maybe there's some minor problems. Maybe it's an issue of balance. When there are all these critiques out there. Yeah. So th- I guess I'm trying to present the um, the other sides of of the discussion that are not uh, yeah. usually heard.
1: Now I think it was in Cairo. Um, a few Islamic states came together and made the Islamic Declaration of yeah. Human Rights. How do you feel about that?
2: Yeah, I had a look um, I had a look at, at them. I think there are two or possibly even three Islamic yeah. Declarations of Human Rights. There's Ongoing a Cairo Declaration of Human Rights and there's an Islamic Declaration of Human Rights. They're interesting. I mean, on a pragmatic level, I can see what they're trying to do. Uh, it's like they're trying to win something back you mm. know um you know we fundamentally disagree with the universal declaration so we'll make our own which is similar but amended yeah amended, so makes a reaction concession it's a reac- it's definitely yeah. a reaction what i found more interesting but is the reaction to that reaction okay so the you know human rights community's reaction to the islamic declarations which was absolutely scathing mm. um precisely because they're not secular so this is where it gets interesting it, about universality this is something that happened recently isn't it um, not, not very long ago, about a decade or so ago. Oh, yeah. But in
1: saying that, wasn't the um, another critique being that the... Um, oh, I'm for, I forgot which one, but it put um, the rights, again, more in the hands of the states than in the hands of the individuals, even more so than the standard... The Islamic ones did? Yeah, I think that was a, a big critique of it. Okay, I haven't actually in come de-emphasizing across that de-emphasising the... Um, the role the of the individual. Yeah,
2: the the two main critiques that I come ac- that I've come across uh, about the Islamic declarations. One, the f- the founding one, the main one, was that um, they're not secular, that they invoke God, and that they have an Islamic language. Okay, which was a, a major problem. Why? Because they can no longer be sold as neutral. Okay, why? Because Islam is not neutral according to to that ideal. Okay, uh, Islam is an ideology; it's a particular uh, way of understanding the world. Whereas human rights is simply fact. Okay, it's common sense. And the second one was, as as we always hear, the rights of women mm-hmm. are being trampled in this document and so on. So you can see, with even with a very, like you said, it's just um, you know an amended version of the Universal Declaration yeah. was fiercely attacked and, and dismissed.
0: So this is, I guess, a problem as well that when a collective of Muslim scholars and thinkers come out with a like a you know a, a standard document which they try to uh, pass as a, a universal representation of what Muslims think. It still is not uh, that is not um, I guess authentic to Islam, if you will. Because uh, I mean, for example, for the International Declaration of Human Rights, that it doesn't represent all of humanity, and so the Islamic Declaration of Human Rights does not represent Islam. It's just a reflection of whatever is prevalent at the time.
2: Well, I'm not in a position to make that statement. I'm not an Islamic scholar, so I can't say whether it does or doesn't, and it's not something that I, I can really comment on. I can only comment on the relationship between the Islamic documents and the reaction from the human rights community, so...
0: So, I mean, if this is something that you're um, researching now, would it be possible the next time that you're here <laughs> to discuss? Because this is very interesting. I mean, it happens a lot that a collective of Muslim scholars yeah. come together and they talk about either, you know, a human rights or economy or uh, interest, for example, or anything like that. And what comes out is nothing close to, you know, what Islam should be. It's just about like mm-hmm. a reflection or a reaction. So it's very interesting. It would be very it, interesting. It's to very interesting.
2: It's something that I have my mind on long term. Yeah. I mean, if I become an uh, Islamic scholar between now and next time I see you, perhaps I'll answer it for you. But what I what I try and get from it currently, and what I'm you know researching at the moment in this regard, is is about speech. Okay, so again, go back to post-colonial theory, back to Spivak. She has the you know famous saying of you know everybody can utter, but only some people can speak. And so the you know the the frustration that you're pointing to, Nasser is is a lack of being able to speak. You know, despite the fact that a number of Muslim scholars worldwide came together, sat down, drafted documents, whatever it is, um, it was still not accepted as a, a valid speech act. Mm. Okay, it was always dismissed. This is specific. This is ideological. This is an agenda, etc., etc. It's never accepted as speech, and this goes directly back to what uh, you know Yasser stated last week about race. It's a race issue. Yeah, it, it, it fundamentally stems down uh, back to that. Only certain people are privileged enough to speak. Everybody else okay. has to make their case. You know. Uh, very broadly um, a, and in depth and, and will simply be dismissed
0: Jazakumullah mm-hmm. Khairan Thank you very much Jazakumullah Khairan Brother Muhammad, Taba for coming in uh, to our studio and for answering your questions
1: Got any questions Yasser? No um,
0: Thanks Mohamed <laughs> <laughs> oh, We'll chat welcome. about it on the plane back home <laughs> <Okay>. Sydney sliders, <laughs> <is> man. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah um, Are you going to do it or shall I?
1: Uh, I will. I okay. would like to dedicate this show this evening to a very special lady, Maha <laughs> Najareen. You better be listening. I <laughs>
2: know. Oh, Why my show? Why my show? Uh, <laughs> she asked.
0: <laughs> it's our fair. sole listener,
2: bro. Yeah. Uh, okay, fair enough. For for hosting and for the invitation. <laughs> <It's always laughs>
0: good uh, thank you also, uh, Brother uh, Yasser, for yeah, uh,
1: your invaluable ooh, contributions, for contributions to this episode. Yeah. Yes, I We couldn't have done it without you. Uh,
0: thank you. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. And thank you, you brought Anna a Rose. level of
1: depth that okay. was
0: needed. Uh, what I'm hearing here is m- I'm better in silence. <laughs> 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 thank you very much, Anna Rose, as well for You're taking part welcome. in the show. Thank you both. And uh, to our listeners, thank you again for listening Thanks, to Maha. us. <laughs> this is your host, Nasser Khatib. as Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.
1: as